This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying for your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. For 24 years, Dan Rather was the reassuring face and voice of CBS Nightly News. And he says one of the side benefits of having been America's newsman for two and a half decades is that his travels and conversations with Americans from all walks of life, from monumental leaders like JFK and Martin Luther King to everyday working folks, have given him what he likes to call a wide-angle shot of the American experience and what it truly means to be a patriot. Dan Rather has seen an awful lot in his 60 years as a journalist, and he has a lot to say about the state of our republic and the unique qualities and founding principles that make America special. Things like courage, service, inclusion, and even dissent, many of which, he says, are being tested during this strange moment in our nation's history. He writes about it in a new book titled What Unites Us? Reflections on Patriotism. And today, Dan Rather joins me on the podcast to share what went through his mind on election night 2016 and his outrage at the current assault on many of our most cherished values, including freedom of the press. He recalls his own family's experience during the Great Depression as a lesson in empathy and how his interactions with men like Martin Luther King Jr. and Medgar Evers opened his eyes to the kind of institutionalized racism that he hadn't experienced growing up as a boy in mostly white, segregated Texas. He talks frankly about how attitudes have changed since his early days as a journalist in the 50s and 60s, how his own thinking has evolved on a number of social issues like gay rights, and he weighs in on the recent rash of sexual harassment scandals that have rocked newsrooms from NBC to his old network, CBS. He discusses the dozen presidents he's known in his 60-year career as a journalist, which one of them most embodied the values he holds dear, and the one word that has always carried Dan Rather through good times and bad. Coming up with the legendary newsman himself in just a moment. Dan Rather is a beloved journalist who has interviewed every president since Dwight Eisenhower and covered almost every important dateline around the world. Rather joined CBS News in 1962, and in 1981, he assumed the position of anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News, which he held for 24 years. His reporting helped turn 60 Minutes into an institution, launched 48 Hours as a news magazine program, and shaped countless specials and documentaries. 
upon leaving CBS, Rather created the Emmy Award-winning Dan Rather Reports for HDNet, and he's the founder, president, and CEO of News & Guts, an independent production company that specializes in high-quality nonfiction content across all ranges of traditional and digital channels. He's recently authored a collection of essays along with his former CBS colleague, Elliot Kirshner. It's titled, What Unites Us? Reflections on Patriotism. Mr. Rather, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Ben, thank you very much for having me. Well, I have to tell you, as a Texas boy who grew up not far from where you were born in Wharton, Texas, (laughs) I really missed your commentary as I watched the wild 2016 election returns this past year. And I just kept thinking to myself, God, you know, I'll bet Dan Rather would have some great old Texas colloquialisms for all of this. What was going through your mind when you watched that night unfold? Well, it's one of the more interesting election nights of my lifetime, and I've been covering election nights, presidential election nights since 1952, before I came to CBS News. And I'd be... um, Less than honest if I didn't say that I missed being on the air that night. I was on the air <laughs> peripherally, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean. Being uh, the center anchor for election night is one of the great honors of the craft. And uh, I, found, I found myself saying very early in the evening, uh, better strap in because this could be very interesting. I did not predict that Donald Trump would win the election. I did say... Uh, the night of the election and the night before the election that he had a chance to win, which, as you know, was not the prevailing thought at the time. It's not because I was prescient uh, about it. It's just based on my experience that what I said was that Hillary Clinton had a number of paths to victory, Mm -hmm. but Donald Trump had one path. Right. And my analysis, which for once at least turned out to be right, that if he could get a, a strong turnout of women voters, which was not expected to vote for him, mm-hmm. uh, that that would clear a path for him to possibly win. Now, as you know, it turned out more women did vote. More women voted for Donald Trump than voted for Hillary Clinton, which well, led to the great surprise because it was almost uh, conventional wisdom that she would get a majority of women. She mm-hmm. didn't, and that was the key to her loss. What was your reaction when it, when it was finally all said and done that night? Well, uh, I was surprised, but only slightly, because mm-hmm. I had said to myself and said on the air that he could win. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't shocked, but yeah. I was mildly surprised. When, but when Hillary Clinton did not go in the final stages of, of the campaign to Wisconsin, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, when she failed to go, I did say at that time, this could prove to be a mistake. Mm-hmm. It might be a fatal mistake, and as it turned out, it was. Um, but my other impression on election night was, I think among the surprised people was Donald Trump. I know he doesn't oh, yeah. say so. <laughs> I don't yeah. think he expected to win. Certainly he hoped to win and was exhilarated to win. But among my early thoughts was, well, Donald Trump is among the more surprised people in the country that he's going to be president of the United States. But I then made a mistake in analysis Uh, Unfortunately, I make my mistakes. Journalism is not a precise science. On its best days, it's kind of a crude art. (laughs) Uh, That I did think there was a chance, knowing Donald Trump some, I was never a close friend of his, but living in New York, you couldn't avoid him. Right, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I thought that he would be smart enough to pivot after the election. Or let me say, I thought he might be smart enough to Mm -hmm. pivot after the election and take the attitude 
this is the ultimate honor that can be bestowed on anyone by the American people, and that he would try to reach out and be president of all the people instead of continue to play to his base. Mm -hmm. I was wrong about that. There was one brief moment, if you remember, long about inauguration time when he made a speech which was at least mildly conciliatory, Mm -hmm. but he did not make that pivot. Yeah, and I think that surprised a lot of people because the assumption was that he had no particular core values. So there seemed that there was going to be some flexibility on his part that hasn't really come to pass, has it? Well, that's exactly right, Ben. That's what led to my mistake. Mm -hmm. Uh, That it's neither profound or wise to observe that Donald Trump is basically about Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, And... I figured and figured wrong. He would say to himself, it's in my best interest to reach out and now yeah. say, look, I ran as a Republican, but you got to know I'm, I'm really a centrist. And uh, that he would try to govern from, from that base point. Dead wrong, of course. Mm-hmm. Dead wrong. He made a decision. Uh, I, I, I don't think he even thought about it very much. Mm-hmm. That he would try to uh, cement his base and build on that base if he could. You know, and thank you about that, Ben, that I find in traveling around the country, I love to travel and I love to talk to people. That's what reporters do. You know, put feet on the street and talk to people. That with Donald Trump, he is so engrossed in himself. He's not a party person at all. And it turns out he, was, he wasn't dumb about this. Uh, it, okay. It, when people say Donald Trump's no dummy, he's a smart guy. I always, I'm always interested to hear their version of that. Well, their I have a version that. of that. Okay. That having known him before, yeah. that, that it's a mistake to underestimate Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised at how many people still underestimate him. He is intelligent. Mm-hmm. He has a certain cunning shrewdness about him. And he does have an instinct, a nostril, if you will, of where the public mood is, where what people's fears are, what people's dislikes and hates are. And he's, he's masterful. I, I think that's an apt word, mm. sort of sensing where the public mood is, particularly with at least roughly a third, slightly a plus of a third of the country. And so when I say he's intelligent, I, I recognize people say, how can you say that, Dan, rather? Because <laughs> if he's all that smart, why does he keep yeah. making these dumb mistakes? Yeah. I don't have an ex- explanation <laughs> for that. But I hope yeah. the point is taken that of a certain kind of intelligence, a certain kind of smarts, he has the mm-hmm. smarts. The remarkable thing about Donald Trump is that he appeals to people who are at the direct opposite end of the socioeconomic scale. He's, yeah, he's a billionaire. A he's a billionaire New Yorker who was born to privilege and place. Yeah. Uh, for example, he he poses as the ultimate patriot, <laughs> but when it was his time to go to war during the Vietnam War, uh, he in effect begged off. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to reconcile these things. I've given up trying to reconcile it. <laughs> the best we can do is sort of ride this wild horse of of a time in our country yeah. and try to sort it out. But I still think it's a mistake to underestimate him. Mm-hmm. I think that to the extent that uh, I could be wrong, I often am. But I think if you held an election today, Donald Trump might very well get reelected really? for many of the same reasons that he won the election. Now, mm-hmm. I agree 
that his support is has diminished somewhat, but I'm impressed that his core constituency still oh, yeah. remains in the 37, yeah, 38, 39 category. Yeah. And, and there's that old saying, you know, you can't beat somebody with nobody. <clears throat> yeah. So you look trying to analyze and say, well, okay, if the election were held today, yeah. it isn't, but let's play the run? game. Who might the Democrats run? Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody that I would say to myself is a gut sense to beat Donald Trump. Now, that certainly could change mm-hmm. as the situation changes, particularly with the Mueller investigation, about which we know very little. Mueller knows a lot more than he has revealed so far. And uh, that could change the equation. But I'll ride with that to the moment. If the election were held today, I, uh, I'm not saying Trump would win, Mm-hmm. But I think you would have a chance. Now, I noticed in this new book, What Unites Us, you don't particularly single out Donald Trump. No. You, you talk in more broad terms. Was that because you didn't want to alienate his supporters or because you felt that some of these issues that you're talking about are bigger and go deeper than Donald Trump in the 2016 election? The latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what I wanted to do with this book, it is not a screed against Donald Trump. Right. In fact, I didn't set out uh, to do this, but his name is not even mentioned in the book. What I wanted to do was take a, a broad overview uh, and remind ourselves of those things that unite us, which are more plentiful and run deeper than the things that divide us. That's hard to see in the present context yeah. because Donald Trump has made a bet that if he talks about divisions, if he exploits divisions, That will be to his personal benefit. But my approach to the book was I I wanted to do what we call on television, take a wide shot, pull (laughs) pull back and see see things in context, including historical context and some, uh, if you will, uh, uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. And so what what unites us, I did want to talk about patriotism, what patriotism is in the second decade of the 21st century. Right, and not jingoistic patriotism like we see a lot of today, but a different idea of patriotism. Exactly, and one of the things I discuss in What Unites Us, uh, these are reflections on patriotism, is the importance of people reminding themselves, or if they don't know, to understand the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Mm -hmm. Now, they... They're two separate words with two separate dictionary definitions. <laughs> they do overlap one another. But speaking of historical perspective, we know that extreme economic nationalism in the 1920s led to the Great Depression. And we know True. that Aryan, which is, say, racial nationalism of extreme, led to Adolf Hitler. So we have to be careful not to confuse nationalism with patriotism. Mm-hmm. Part of the core of patriotism is humility. Humility is not a word generally associated <laughs> with past or present anchormen, I understand. <laughs> or or but, most presidents, for that matter, I suppose. Well, a good point. But that with patriotism, it is a, a deep abiding love for the country, including a willingness to literally die for the country if called upon to do so. But with the humility to recognize that the country is not perfect. We have made our mistakes. We are making our mistakes. We're bound to make mistakes. But the spirit of American patriotism is we have this deep love for the country, but we recognize 
that we're constantly in search of being better. Mm -hmm. And very important that the original motto of the United States of America was a pluribusium, out of many, one. Mm -hmm. And it was a historic bet. There's never been anything like it in history. And when I talk about a, a wide shot, a broad view of things, to understand that when the country was formed, we were trying something that had never been tried before in human history, yeah. and that most of the world thought it would not work for even a short time. That is, to have a country that is multiracial, multi-religious, multi-ethnic background, that can center around enough core values to remain united. When the country was formed, most of the world sort of chuckled mm -hmm. to themselves and said, this will never work. Well, here we are working soon to be 300 years, and the experiment is going on. But it has to be renewed with each new generation. And part of my motivation for writing the book, I want this to be a better country. It's a great country. It's, it, we are a great people. We are a great country. But we're in the constant struggle to ever improve it. And that it has to be taken on by each succeeding generation. So in write, choosing to write the book, I'm saying, you know, I want this to be a better country for my son and daughter and for my two grandsons and for their offspring. And to do that, uh, the responsibility is great. Now, my time to affect what the country is and is going to be is rapidly fading. I'm 86 years old, working on my 87th year. Uh, I'm mightily blessed to have my health and still be working. But I'm, I'm sort of on the back side of the hill. Uh, I'm very grateful for what's happened with Facebook and with our News and Guts site, but I have no illusions. So I thought, well, with the book, I can make perhaps a microscopic mm -hmm. contribution to helping the present upcoming generation, people in their late teens, 20s, and 30s, uh, to understand what it's going to take to continue to improve this historic experiment. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Dan Rather when we come back in just a moment. With the holidays fast approaching, we're all indulging a little more, and it can be harder to ensure that you're getting all your nutrients in. That's why there's iFit Nourish, a customized protein drink that's jam-packed with all the essential nutrients you need. iFit Nourish is unlike any other nutritional shake. It allows you to personalize your mix while delivering the highest quality of fruits, veggies, and protein, plus 25 essential vitamins and minerals. And since iFit Nourish is passionate and picky about their ingredients, there's no artificial flavors, no added colors, no preservatives, and no fillers, ever iFit Nourish focuses on the basics of human nutrition, so every single ingredient in your formula is included for a reason and backed with extensive research. And don't worry, all of their flavors have been approved by a panel of taste judges and are completely delicious. Now folks, no one is pickier than me, but I ordered their vanilla protein drink, and I have to tell you, they taste so good that I've actually been drinking them for dessert every night. Ready to simplify your life? Just go to ifitnourish.com slash kickass for a free 14-serving bag of iFit Nourish Mix and a shaker bottle. It's hassle-free and 100% convenient. That's ifitnourish.com slash kickass to create your unique mix today. And now, back to the podcast. 
And one of those core aspects of Americanism that you talk about is empathy, which seems not really in vogue these days, or if you listen to the political discourse, but you talk about it in terms of your own family's experience in Texas during the Great Depression. It's hard for people in my generation to imagine what the Depression was like, but it sounds like for you, you learned some pretty powerful lessons in empathy in those years, right? Well, and among those powerful lessons was the difference between compassion and empathy. Hmm. And the empathy chapter is my own favorite chapter of the book. Really? Obviously, I love every chapter, like you love all of your children, but I love the empathy chapter because my mother taught me at a very early age and in the chapter on empathy in what unites us, uh, I recount the story that we lived in a, in a tough neighborhood, mm-hmm. wrong side of the tracks, if you will. I'm not playing humble beginnings here, but that was the reality. And we had many desperately poor people in the neighborhood. My own family was... Uh, a little, a little better off, but not all that much. But at any rate, at Christmas time, my father and his brother, my uncle John, who's now deceased, as is my father. But nonetheless, at Christmas time, they put together uh, some toys and presents to take to our less fortunate neighbors. And as a child, I didn't fully understand that, uh, and I s- said words to the effect to my mother, "Why are we doing this for other people?" No. Uh-huh. And then I sought, as children sometimes do, to answer my own question. And I said, well, uh, I understand. We feel sorry for them. And my mother then made a very important point. She said, no, Danny, we don't feel sorry for them. We understand. We understand them. It was in the spirit mm-hmm. of we know what it's like to walk in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And we take the attitude of there, but for the grace of God, go for us. Wow. And uh, that's the reason that we're giving the toys to the other children. Yeah. It made a deep and abiding impression on me. You know, frequently in childhood, what your parents teach you sort of goes in and out. You yeah. stick with it. But that <laughs> stuck with me. But here's the point why I wanted to spend a chapter in what unites us. That empathy is very much a part of the American character. Mm-hmm. Now, you said in today's time, we don't see much empathy. I would Not amend in the that media and the political discourse. I, exactly. I would amend that to say in the political discourse mm-hmm. because, again, some of this is cynical on the part of political right. leaders. Right. And I'm not going to duck or dodge it, and that includes the present president of the United States who, as I said before, seeks to exploit our divisions. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Out there in the country, anybody who travels the country from the great Atlantic Ocean to the wide Pacific shore and from the Canadian border to the Mexican border, anybody who travels the country and talks to Americans and listens to Americans know that the sense of empathy and fairness runs deep and wide in this country. Mm-hmm. Now, the political leadership in that sense, as they are in so many other ways, is out of touch with what's going on with the, with the population as a whole. Yeah. I don't want anybody, Ben, to think that I'm not realistic this is a very dangerous time. We're, in, we're going through a rather dark valley. And so what I'm talking about and what I've written in, in What Unites Us is not some unrealistic Pollyannish, listen, everything's <laughs> going to be all right. We're going to be all right. I am an optimist by nature and by experience. I do think we'll come through this, but it's not going to happen magically. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be, it has to happen one citizen at a time, one community at a time. And 
frankly, if more people got up in the morning and said to themselves, what can I do for my for some other person today? What can I do for just one other person today? That's a mark of patriotism. And to say, beyond that, then what can I do to help my community and my neighbors today? And then eventually get to what can I do for my country today? You know, President John Kennedy and his remarkable inaugural address asked the memorable question of ask not what your country can do for right. you, ask, ask what, what you, you can, can do, do for, for your country. country. I think that resonates today. It's hard to make it out with all of the overheated rhetoric, mm -hmm. some of it dangerous rhetoric, the kind of rhetoric that seeks to make uh, a equivalency between neo-Nazism, neo-Nazism, yeah. as the president did at Charlottesville, and to give wink-wink and so-called dog whistles to the Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux yeah. Klan. This is not consistent with our history. It's not consistent with what we're about. And I do find in traveling around that a lot of people overwhelmingly are saying, we are better than this. Mm -hmm. We're better than what we've shown the world in the last nine months. Yeah, and as someone who had a front row seat for the civil rights movement, your take on that is very interesting because you say that growing up in Texas as a kid, you were largely unaware of the plight of African Americans, but then as a journalist pretty early into your career, you were assigned to cover the civil rights movement. You interviewed Martin Luther King Jr. and got to know Medgar Evers pretty well. It was sort of a, an awakening, I guess. Describe it was a transformation, transformation of me. I grew up in a, in a segregated society in Texas where there was uh, institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. It was not like deep Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina at the time, uh, but it was a deeply segregated society. And the prevailing view among white people, including my own family, my own neighborhood, was that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was assigned as my first major assignment at CBS News, beginning in 1962 to the civil rights movement and uh, the comings and goings of Dr. Martin Luther King, that experience changed me as a person and as a professional in a, in a, a, a very deep and significant way. For example, when I first saw a Ku Klux Klan rally, I had heard about the Klan nearly all my life. Growing up in, well, I was born in Wharton, growing up in Houston, but I'd never seen a Klan rally. Really? And I remember vividly the first time I saw a Klan rally, and I probably saw three to five Klan rallies in the first three quarters of a year I worked for CBS News. I remember the sense of, of fear and foreboding that how my neck would swell and the hairs on my forearm would raise a little mm. bit, seeing yes, this clan rally. And I'm all sure. I could think about was, if it affects me that way, what yeah. terror it must be for any black family within 200 miles of this clan mm. rally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which goes back to empathy. Yes. Wow. It, it does, as a matter of fact. Good point. But... You know, I, I think now here we are, you know, getting ever deeper in the 21st century. There's so many people who uh, are alive today who either don't remember what it was like, but even more so young people, it's hard for them to imagine. You talk about a, the Ku Klux Klan, it must yeah, seem as seems far so away as... Yeah, so probably. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's worth reminding ourselves 
that uh, we have made progress on civil rights and racial justice, but we still have a very, very long way to go. Yeah, in the book you talk about our progression on civil rights and social issues usually goes something like intolerance to tolerance and then tolerance to finally inclusion. Where along that timeline would you say we are right now? Well, it's a very important point. And I, I spoke yesterday with uh, uh, on another program with Tavis Smiley. Mm, yeah. And he challenged me because he said, you know, you, t- you have a chapter on inclusion. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Rather, in effect, he said, tolerance is one thing. Inclusion is quite another. Yeah. And I said, yes. And I do deal with this in the chapter. That tolerance is a aversion to use street language. Okay, what the hell? I can tolerate yeah. this other religion. Yeah. I can tolerate this yeah. other race. It's, it's one slight step above indifference, basically. That's right. right. It, it's a step up from indifference. Indifference, good point. But it's not to the point of inclusion. Now, your question is, where are we today? I think we're on the borderline leaning toward uh, inclusion. Mm-hmm. There's more inclusion, more talk about inclusion, more actual inclusion now than perhaps there's ever been in our history. But there still are a lot of people who take the view, okay, I will not be indifferent to Muslims. I will not be indifferent to people of color. I'll, I'll tolerate it. But they're not, not mm-hmm. there yet for inclusion. When I say we have a long way to go, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Now, one social change that you say you never really saw coming is how Americans' attitudes have changed very quickly, it seems, on gay rights. You say even if you looked back at the young Dan Rather in your CBS days in the 60s or in the 50s, what you might have said or thought back then, you, you probably wouldn't be too proud. Talk a little bit about your own evolution on that subject. Well, it... It parallels to a degree uh, how I have developed, if that's the right verb to use, Mm -hmm. on uh, race relations. That Look, again, I grew up uh, in an America, not just in Texas, but in an America where nobody even whispered the word homosexual. Mm -hmm. Uh, The word gay was not in widespread use at that time. There was tremendous prejudice against uh, people of other sexual orientation to the point, as I say, it was just the unspoken, nobody spoke it. Uh, And again, uh, uh, I'm sorry to say, but candidly I have to say that I fell in that category which was prevalent all over the country of that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I would not have, when I was covering civil rights in the 1960s, if, if you had said to me, in the not-too-distant future, uh, gay marriage is going to be accepted and it will be supported in the courts of law in this country. I probably would have said one of two things to you if you had said that to me. I might have said, you should see a psychiatrist <laughs> or you're smoking something very expensive. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to joke about it, but that, yeah. that's seated. But, you know, I was very lucky and blessed in so many ways that when I became a CBS News correspondent, I began to travel widely as a correspondent, see not only our own country, but abroad. And uh, I was slow. It's often been said of me, I don't learn fast, but I learn good. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the case with this. But uh, it raises, uh, again, 
sort of parallel to that, again, you know, when I was covering the civil rights movement, uh, there was a small core of reporters with other networks and newspapers, and sometime after midnight, a day's work, and maybe you were an adult beverage, we would talk about, you know, is the time coming when a, when a black person might be elected to Congress or might be elected governor? Some thought yes, some thought not in our lifetime. But nobody thought that people of my age at that time, I was in, what, my 30s, lived to see the time that mm-hmm. a, a, an African-American was elected president. Inconceivable. And a companion to that was foreseeing a day when a movement for gay rights began to succeed in some very important uh, areas. And not only just gay rights, but the rights of mm-hmm. all kinds of differences of sexual orientation. My point is that we couldn't imagine an African-American president, and we couldn't imagine a day uh, when the rights of people of, of differing sexual orientations would be protected even in the courts. You know, another social change that seems to be happening very quickly is... America's attitudes on sexual harassment in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, and certainly that has not spared the newsroom. You have Mark Halperin, Charlie Rose, now Matt Lauer, who've been caught up in this uh, with some pretty serious allegations, I think. Um, I'm sure that a lot of these are people that you've known either through your work or socially in New York. What do you make of all this? Well, what I make of it is that and again, I've been slow to come to this conclusion, mm-hmm. but I have concluded that we're at a point of tidal change. Mm-hmm. This is a day of reckoning. And going forward, sexual harassment is not going to disappear overnight. But this is a very important turning point. It's going to, and it has turned. The reckoning is, look, this is abominable, these kinds of acts. This is not to be accepted. We've got to change. Men have got to change their attitudes. And I think you can already see that that's happening. Mm -hmm. What concerns me a little is that it will take time to get work its way all the way down the socioeconomic scale. I think about the kind of women who make up the bed in this hotel, Mm -hmm. or women who are waitresses at a diner, or work at a small business. Yeah, who don't they have are a more, voice. They are more bo- yeah. vulnerable than, than people in the media yeah. working for people who make a lot of money. So that'll take time. Yeah. But this is a time of reckoning and, reckoning, and it's high time. Yeah, and, and I have to imagine when you were coming up at CBS News in the 60s, in my imagination, that must have been something like Mad Men with skirt chasing <laughs> and ass grabbing and God knows what. Did you see much of that back in those days? The short answer is yes. Yeah. But it's got to stop. Yeah. And now is the time for it to stop. Do you feel lucky that you were already happily married in those days? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always felt lucky I'm yeah. happily married. <laughs> <laughs> now, you recall your early days working at the Houston Chronicle in the book, where you worked under this ultra-conservative, red-baiting, McCarthyist editor who exercised very tight control over the newsroom. When you compare those days or, say, CBS during the Watergate scandal to this current moment with the media under all kinds of financial and political pressure and dissenters in the media attacked as quote-unquote fake news. Do you think we have greater press freedoms today or or back then? I think we have greater press freedom today, and we're lucky. Mm -hmm. 
uh, that I'm, I'm very relieved to see that uh, I think those of us in journalism, and I, I include myself in this criticism, there was a period not so long ago when, for example, deep digging investigative reporting sort of went out of style. Mm -hmm. But there's something of a revival now. Some of the work, the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, even some of the cable networks such as CNN. There's been a revival in investigative reporting, and uh, it, it may be just in time, because I do feel, Ben, that people speaking of a wide shot need to see in context, we have never had a president, any president, including Richard Nixon, who didn't like the press and did try to intimidate the press. However, we've never seen a president who's so consistently from the first day in office and so relentlessly sought to discredit individual reporters, even mocking one individual reporter who had physical challenges, right. individual reporters, individual institutions threatening to use the full force and power of the presidency of the United States to force the kind of coverage he wants. This is dangerous. And I think any thinking person, whether they're a Trump supporter or a Trump hater or something in between, somewhere down deep knows that a free and independent, fiercely independent when necessary press is the red beating heart of freedom and democracy. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have it as a part of the system of checks and balances on power, then we're going to have a different form of yeah. government. Uh, I mentioned in the opening that you've covered every president since Dwight D. Eisenhower. Without asking you to pick a favorite necessarily, uh, was there one who you felt perhaps more than others embodied the ideals that you talk about and what unites us? Well, I appreciate you're not asking to single out one <laughs> liking or disliking because this much, uh, as I say, I, I, I make a lot of mistakes and I have my faults, but you never met anybody who had more respect for the office mm -hmm. of the presidency of the United States. But with that, I guess maybe it's the Texan in me, I don't know. There's always been a sense, well, that's true, but the person who holds that office at any given time, he's not the descendant of some sun god. He's right. A, he's a... He's another citizen who's like, elevated yeah. to the same, and yeah. therefore he, he, he needs to be challenged with tough questions and so forth. But I would say of, of presidents, in trying to answer your question, the list is not limited to these, uh, but Dwight David Eisenhower, two-term Republican president in the 1950s, uh, he certainly didn't run an ideal presidency, and when you rate presidents, he's probably rated, generally speaking, somewhere in the middle, maybe a little below the middle. But in terms of, in, of understanding and embodying many of the core values that I outlined in what unites us, uh, Eisenhower had a very, a very strong sense of that. If you remember, he delivered one of the most important addresses of any president with his farewell address yeah. in which he warned of the military-industrial complex. By the way, in that speech, it was originally written, the military-business-industrial complex. And uh, some of your staff members said you can't mention business. But I, I would say uh, uh, Eisenhower. Interesting. Uh, Ronald Reagan in this sense, that Ronald Reagan uh, embodied optimism. Mm -hmm. He was always about uh, optimism and optimism about the country. It's not to say I agreed with President Ronald Reagan about his policies, but in that sense, 
he also embodied uh, many of what we have in the mm-hmm. book. But we've we've been very lucky in this country, yeah. Ben, that you know we've never had a president who was evil. Mm-hmm. Now Richard Nixon had to leave office because he he led a widespread criminal conspiracy that we call for short Watergate. Warren Harding was a terrible president, but we've never had a president who was actually an evil. Mm-hmm. president and in that we've been very lucky yeah and it's interesting to hear you single out two republican presidents for someone who has at various times been accused <laughs> of liberal bias in the media <laughs> well uh, you know i'm a believer my brother don was a football coach for a long yeah. time and he was fond of saying you are what your record is yeah <laughs> and uh, professionally i am what my record is yeah. and uh that in journalism, you're going to get criticized. Mm-hmm. There's always, particularly if you handle controversial stories. And, mm-hmm. You know, as a journalist, I consider myself lucky to have covered the civil rights movement, but it was very controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. We were called the communist broadcasting system and the wow. colored broadcasting system. <laughs> uh, covered the Vietnam War, one of the most divisive issues the country's faced since the Civil War. Uh, covered Watergate. When you handle the, those kind of high-profile controversial stories, uh, you're going to have people who don't like you. Mm-hmm. And Comes only half-kiddingly, I say, if you're going to be a journalist, particularly an investigative journalist, and you want to be loved, you better get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go, there's one word that's been a constant in your life and sort of a mantra of yours ever since childhood, the word steady. What does that word mean for you? Well, it comes from my father. One of my father's favorite words was steady. Another was courage. Um, and he and my mother both, you know, going through the Depression in the early stages of World War II, there were plenty of times when he felt personal pressure, felt the country under tremendous pressure. So I grew up with the word steady sort of <laughs> ringing in my mind. But there's a chapter in the book uh, on steady because, again, we have our faults as a country. We're not a perfect people, but our history shows that when the pressure's on, we historically have been steady. So I think during this dark period, this period where so many people are fearful for the future of the country, it's good to remind ourselves, just hold steady, just hold steady, and we'll get through this because no president is stronger than the country as a whole. It may take a while, but I'm absolutely convinced we're going to be all right yeah. eventually. Well, encouraging and powerful words. <laughs> Again, the book is called What Unites Us, Reflections in Patriotism. Dan Rather, it's been such an honor and a pleasure. Gentle Ben, it's been a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to Dan Rather for coming on the podcast. Order Dan Rather's book, What Unites Us? Reflections on Patriotism on Amazon or download the audio version at audible.com. Follow him on Facebook and Twitter and visit his website at newsandguts.com. Today's episode was sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible.com's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. 
Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.